0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. For anyone who has been paying attention to Christian publishing over the last few decades, it is manifestly the case that evangelicals are unsure of their relationship to psychology. You can find plenty of books that set up an antithesis between Christianity and psychology. So the the Christian worldview diagnoses the human problem as sin and the solution is repentance. Uh, And secular psychology diagnoses the human problem as an environmental or chemical and the solution therefore is therapeutic or medicinal. Uh, By contrast, are those who give such an authoritative say to modern psychology that they tend to reinterpret classical doctrines in therapeutic and psychological terms such that one might grow concerned that the the tail of the psychological discipline is wagging the dog of Christian dogma. Uh, With Dale and I today is Matthew Lapine, pastor of theological development at Cornerstone Church and lecturer at Salt School of Theology in Ames, Iowa. Uh, Most relevant for today, however, Dr. Lapine is the author of a recently published and very important book, The, The Logic of the Body, Retrieving Theological Psychology. In this work, Dr. Lapine seeks to show that there is a whole tradition of psychological theory within the Christian tradition that anticipates many contemporary developments and that we can still draw upon in our pastoral practice, overcoming the dualistic manner in which we tend to imagine and therefore care for the human person. But I don't want to say too much at the get-go because I think the crucial pieces will come out in our conversation, so we'll just, we'll just get right to it. So, uh, uh, Matthew, first of all, thanks for for being here with us, we are very delighted to have you.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: No, our our pleasure. Uh, so maybe the first thing we can do is just uh, have you talk about uh, Mary's anxiety. I thought it was a fantastic way of setting up the problem. You've you've got a lady at church named Mary, and she struggles with anxiety. Tell us what you think Mary is likely to experience as she as she tries to manage anxiety at an ordinary, well-meaning evangelical church.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I tried to set up that example in the book as, as a bit sort of on the border of, um, of, you know, what, how would, how we would assess it. Right. Um, Because oftentimes when people in the church have, um, you know, significant anxiety um, they'll have a conversation with someone, they'll open themselves up to someone and, and be vulnerable. And the person that's sitting across the table from them is basically trying to decide, look, is this a spiritual problem or a physical problem? Mm -hmm. And so, that conversation is often quite fearful for people dealing with anxiety because it's like, um, am I going to be able to explain it in a way which makes it seem like this is like serious. This is something that, that needs compassion rather than judgment. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I like to say those conversations are, our anxiety is sort of guilty until proven innocent uh, you could say. Mm. Um, and so, you know, what I, what I'm doing in this conversation is I'm sort of trying to put it right on the line. Like, does this person have obsessive compulsive disorder? Is this just sort of run-of-the-mill anxiety to sort of confuse some of those categories to, to try and get us to ask questions like, what actually is happening here? Because, um, you know, if it's sort of run-of-the-mill anxiety, oftentimes in the church, what, what we'll hear is we'll hear something like, um, you know, anxiety is a, uh, 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 it's unbelief, it's, it's a lack of faith in God. Um, that he's good and that he can provide and, and things like that. But then if it's something that's, that's gone wrong with the body, there might be some other steps that you need to take. Um, you know, perhaps take an SSRI uh, uh, or an anxiolytic, some, some medi- medication that will sort of mitigate some of the anxiety that's going on. And basically, I'm, I'm just trying to say, look, um, when we dichotomize it that way, it's kind of convenient for us in the church, but it actually isn't capturing what's going on because anxiety is always involving both our, our ways of seeing the world and the way that our body is organized and so you can't disentangle um, sin and suffering in that way. You have to actually drill a little deeper to find out what's going on underneath the surface.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah. Hmm. In a lot of ways, what you're doing, or at least what this really helps me to think more carefully about was just what it means to be a human, right? We are, And, and we have this in our catechisms. If we're good catechized uh, you know, boys and girls, we say, well, what is man? It's a reasonable soul and a body. Uh, But even when Joe and I were talking about this, even to make that move and to and to articulate the distinction is an abstraction that's already sort of putting things into two separate categories instead of like one holistic person uh, that just is man. Right. Um, And it seems like with what you're doing in your recovery, uh, you do put an emphasis on how in the modern age we tend to, like you're saying, do the dualism move and separate those two things and then like here's a couple bible verses and that will go away or here's some uh here's some ssris and that will go away and so right. you're trying to synthesize these things and i just yeah it was yeah uh, no I, it was that, good that, yeah, so i i def-
1: see it as two fundamental contributions that i'm trying to make one is a, a more holistic account of body and soul and two is um separating our conscious thought from our automatic thought or our choices from our emotions. So two tiers, basically. Um, but that that body holism is really, really crucial, because uh, it is precisely the dualism that maintains this dichotomy, right? Right. Um, when you when you think that your soul is responsible for thinking, and then you know somehow your body is involved on a on a on another level, um, you can just sort of slot things into those categories. Um, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring them together, but then also say, well, look, there is actually a relationship between what's going on consciously and what's going on unconsciously or with right. your nervous system. Um, so I'm sort of reorganizing the psychological furniture, as you might say.
0: Yeah. So so tell us then maybe about, uh, you, you use this interesting phrase, emotional volunteerism. And this is kind of the, uh, not that we, we, we've we inherited the phrase um, uh, uh, emotional volunteerism, but we've inherited, I guess, the practice or idea of emotional volunteerism in a certain sort of way. And, and you, you basically argue that it's an inherited way of thinking about the human that cashes out uh psychologically in a particular way so there's sort of mind body dualism uh and once you carve up reality that way you're going to tend toward this sort of emotional voluntarist uh notion of the emotions what is what help us understand what what do you mean by that phrase emotional voluntarism and and how we're basically how it infects our pastoral care
1: yeah yeah, yeah and and i would say um i see emotional voluntarism i mean i in the book i trace it sort of more historically um especially body soul uh issues you know all going back to medieval theology the renaissance reformation all that but emotional volunteerism as a problem i would say is more kind of the last 40 years um but uh basically what i mean is let's say four things one that um, emotion is a judgment so it's a cognitive it's a cognitive view of emotion um so you can rephrase emotion as a um um, as a propositional uh, phrase. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, it's a moral judgment that, that you're sort of making uh, mentally. Number two, that emotion comes from our heart. So it's sort of a deep belief of our heart that whatever judgment we're making reflects that belief. Uh, number three, then, since it is just a judgment that we're making with our minds and it sort of reflects our heart, uh, we can change them by sort of modifying our thinking uh, about these things and then number four we have a duty to do that as quickly as possible and so that that's kind of what i mean by emotional volunteerism is is this idea that i have a, a strong sense of control over my emotions especially because they're cognitive and i can apply cognitive tools to them
0: yeah. right right um uh, and yet you, you're contrasting you're, you're contrasting this then to uh what you see as a different, Christian psychological tradition a different set of categories. Well, on the one hand, a different a different tradition, both with respect to the relationship of body and soul, uh, but then that cashes out in a different way of talking about the way that emotions relate to the body. And of right. course, um, just to, you know, I'm throwing that out as a question, but of course, it's a loaded question because. Obviously, in our space, like it's, it would be hard to delineate. You know, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas' entire account of human psychology—it's a complicated <laughs> affair. And I, and I should say to listeners, one of the things in this book that that you might not expect is that a large part of it is historical and thoroughly yeah. historical. It's very, very well researched. But uh, if you were to, um, maybe if I put it this way, if you were to sort of bullet point where you think Thomas uh, provides categories that don't quite. That 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 say something different than emotional mm-hmm. volunteerism or frame those the maybe the body soul relationship different. How would you yeah. guess, thirty thousand foot up summarize that?
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so I you know one interesting thing. I mean, I came at this project actually. I was sort of more philosophically interested in emotions, and so I actually was planning to write um, a dissertation uh, more oriented towards a cognitive view of emotions. And I had a friend who really pushed me towards. Uh, investigating trauma. And wh- what I began to find was um, that the, there is this divide between philosophers and psychologists and the contemporary mm-hmm. debate about emotion. And philosophers tend to be cognitive oriented. Psychologists tend to be non-cognitive, uh, where emotion is a sort of event that happens in our body and especially our, our limbic system or our lower brain systems. Um, but what was fascinating to me is I I read this book called um, The Logic of Desire by Nicholas Lombardo. And I I began, the the question was, what view does Aquinas hold? Um, Thomas Aquinas had a very developed psychology. And um, what's interesting is that he was, uh, you know, probably the three most cited people in his uh, section on the passions or virtues are uh, Augustine, um, Aristotle, and then uh, this guy named Nemesius of Amessa, which actually he didn't ever cite him. He, he misattributed, uh, I think it was to Gregory of Nyssa. Um, he, he, he didn't understand that it was actually this Galenist medical doctor that he was citing. Mm. Um, but uh, so his, the, the point that I'm making is his account was actually quite medically integrated. So, um, fear is a heating of the heart, for instance. Um, but uh, you know, I thought it was historically fascinating because Galenism actually, you know, ended in like the nineteenth century. It wasn't until germ theory and how we understood how disease arose before we stopped talking about how qualities like hot and cold and moist and dry were impacting our diseases. You know, we still have a lot of that carryover language of Galenism. Anyway, all that all that aside. The point from Aquinas, um, Aquinas has this category of passions. So um, passions are sort of in this middle level. He's got, three, he's got three basic faculties of the soul. The soul doesn't isn't just account, uh, accounting for thinking, but it's accounting for thinking. It's accounting for that sort of middle level where you have automatic thoughts and passions. And then that lower level where you have um, like digestion and heart rate and stuff like that. So the, the lower level are things that you don't control at all the top you have complete control over and the, and the middle, you have sort of an intermediate amount of control. I'm sort of oversimplifying a little bit, but yeah. Um, the idea with this intermediate level though, is that the passions are bodily involving. So um, they're, they're movements of the soul that are accompanied by bodily changes. And so, um, you know, anger always involves heating. Uh, and so I, I thought this was, was, was fascinating because um you know, his account of the, the passions was bodily involving it, it involved habit, but then it also involved a way of, um, making quick judgments about the world without conscious reflection. Um, so our passions are sensitive to reason, but not directly controlled by them. So, um, in any particular moment, um, you know, let's say that I'm walking through the woods and I see a stick that's sort of S shaped uh, and my body has this reaction, uh, I'm making this quick judgment that that's a snake and that I need to be on, on guard or alert or, or, um, you know, uh, defensive. Um, but that judgment actually bypassed my sensory cortex. Like it, like it was, it happened before I even was aware of it. And so that's what Aquinas means by that sort of quick judgment. And the other thing that it does then is it kicks in what we would now call our sympathetic nervous system. So you get that fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Um, and I think it's, it's really important because, um, you know the cognitive this uh, the cognitivist view. The two mistakes that it makes is one it it um, it overlooks how bodily involved our emotions are and the habits that our emotions uh, can get into. Like our body has a sort of climate to it and we can get into ruts. Um, but it also overlooks the fact that that judgment is actually not my thinking. <laughs> um, but that yeah. thinking, my thinking and that judgment are different things, and mm. it's not clear exactly how they relate to each other. Um, there's lots of judgments my body makes, um, so to speak that I am not making, you know, like I'm afraid of heights. And so if you put me, you know, on the top of the one world trade center, um, I would be afraid to get out of the elevator, even though I know that I'm safe. Um, so I would actually be disagreeing with my body in that case. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And this is just, um, another thing Joe and I were talking about with this book is like, phenomenologically, this is just true. This is why it's so important that you're doing a retrieval um, because this is our, this is our, the way that we operate in reality anyway, you can deny it if you'd like, or you can come up with a new scheme, but nevertheless, this just happens to you. (laughs) And the minute that you even begin to say, no, that's not true. You're already disconnected from reality. And we might need to have a therapy session, ironically enough. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that you mentioned is that Thomas is pulling from Uh, this Dr. Galen, um, and how he saw the uh, various elements and what, how that corresponded to the body, like you're saying, anger is heat, but he also had a notion of like uh, contracting and then like creating vacuums that sort of are like black holes that suck. So like there's joy is like the expansion of the soul Mm -hmm. towards the good. And then like depression or anger is like a contraction of that. Talk a little bit about what Aquinas actually does with that. And an interesting thing is like Galenism is not medically correct in the modern age, but nevertheless, we can learn something from it. And that is like expressed explicitly with Aquinas and how that tradition develops. So talk a little bit about um, how he was using that, how he was applying it and where he went with it. And maybe that's a good question. I won't load you up with a bunch of questions, so. Maybe yeah, like,
1: yeah. Uh, th- n- now you're you're asking me something that requires me to, to recall uh, the specific <laughs> passages. That... <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. And well, basically, uh, I think what I'm trying to ask is, um, and you're explaining it in part, but Aquinas has a tiered psychology. So what I'm really trying to ask is, <clears throat> how did he understand the passions and the desires and the we- will? And how are th- is there a hierarchy to those things and what is the relationship if there is a hierarchy? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: um, Aquinas talks about the, the relationship between the will and the passions as, um, as a, as a way of, of governance, right? The, the will governs the passions um, just like reason governs what he would call your sense appetite. So your, your passions are responsive to your, uh, I'm sorry, your, uh, your, uh, apprehension or your perception, right? Your passions are responsive to perception, not to thought. So they're, they're responsive uh, to immediate objects um, rather than abstract ideals. But um, so the will is governing the passions in a way that is not despotic, but it's political. Um, so, uh, your reason and your will are actually convincing your passions to respond in, in certain ways, um, mm. uh, rather than uh, rather than just ordering them in in each particular instance. So there is a sort of uh, Jonathan Haidt says that um, we're like a a man riding an elephant. <laughs> so yeah. the elephant has its own momentum and and perhaps even its own ideas of where it wants to go and. And I think the idea is, you know, the man can at some level control the elephant, but it, you know, might take a while or there might be certain circumstances where he can't control the elephant or something like that. Um, But yeah. So, I I mean, I, I think that the, um, you know, basically what, what it comes down to is the, insofar as the body is involved, there's a certain sort of um, let's say, uh, 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 well, I, I use the word plasticity. Um, yeah, right. So the moldability, uh, a sort of grist to it where, where you can't, it, it's not just infinitely flexible, but it is flexible in certain ways and in, at a certain pace. And so that's why it's a, it's a political governance. And I use the metaphor, which I actually don't, it's not much of a metaphor. It's actually, um, I think a biblical theological theme is that humans are, are like trees and, and we right. bear fruit. Bear fruit like trees, and so, um, in a sense, we are God's undergardeners, and we're we're cultivating and governing our body by our words and by, by our choices, um, and that sort of works its way down. But it's not sort of an immediate thing. I mean, it's not uh, you can't grow a tree overnight, for instance, yeah. and so that when I, when we talk about maturity, I, I, you know, I think I read Philippians today and I just, you know, you see that uh, Paul's like this, this mighty Oak. He's, he's such a mature Christian person. He can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So um, yeah, I hope I am. I, I hope
2: I'm getting sort of at what you're asking there. Yes. And it's difficult because there's so much to say about it. Uh, so yeah, one, yes.
0: one thing I might I might want to uh, uh, ask, sort of, uh, in that, just because I think it's going to be the natural question that arises. It, this this metaphor that Height uses is just wonderful, sort of, the man the man kind of riding the elephant sort of thing. And now, but one thing you know, anytime we talk about rehabituation, because of course this is a this is a crucial thing. Here I you know here 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 I am. I struggle with anxiety or something, and I want to. Uh, I want to engage perhaps in a process of rehabituation in as much as that's part of, you know, what it means to overcome anxiety within a sort of whole personed uh, way of treating that. Um, nevertheless, you know, you could imagine somebody coming along saying, okay, well that, what that looks like is uh, various little forms uh, in various faculties saying stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it over and over again and that's habituation. And of course that's mm-hmm. not, I don't think at all, uh, 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 kind of what you're getting after, but maybe it would help us to say, you know, when you, when we think about transformation and change, what's the relationship between maybe that element of change that we might call the kind of, I hate to use this phrase, but kind of the white knuckling element of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want the cookie, but I'm not going to eat the cookie because I need to lose weight mm-hmm. uh, versus whatever moment in the the process of repentance and transformation um, that isn't quite a white knuckling endeavor, you know. So Dale and I have talked about this a lot recently. That it seems to me that uh, repentance—it's—it's it's a little weird to think of repentance maybe as sort of the first and biggest white knuckle push after which you have a couple little, you know, you have littler right. white knuckle pushes. Repentance seems to me not maybe to be the the initial. Thrust of repentance, maybe, and you use the language of framing interestingly, and I wonder yeah. if this is part of it that the framing of desire is a language you use, and it's mm-hmm. almost that perhaps part of what repentance really is—it's changing the mind, really, right—is—is mm-hmm. is a reframing of reality within which we're desiring precisely so that we will, so that the habituation is successful, and so mm-hmm. it's like the uh, you know the person who loses weight finally, you know, maybe they go on the bajillion diet programs and they never work out, but then through some reframing of it, just what they're even doing, you know, I'm not doing this because I'm ashamed at the end of the day, I'm actually doing, that's actually the real transformation in some way. And then the, the actual losing of the weight is a, so I'm throwing a bunch out there, but I wonder (laughs) respond to all that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah no, that's
1: right. great. Well, well so let me, let me actually, um, sort of walk through, uh, Romans six through eight on this, because I mean, I think, I think one of yeah. the pit, one of the pitfalls that I want to avoid is I want to like, I am trying to bring back, uh, the role of the body and especially the plasticity of the body, the ability to take a new form and to hold that form. Um, so Uh, I'm trying to bring back habit within the the conversation of uh, theological psychology, Um, but uh, I don't want to get into like I I don't I don't I don't want to fall into the idea that what I'm talking about is the same thing that like Charles Duhigg is talking about or any of these other habit gurus. Yeah, Um, right. Like what, what what I'm actually talking about is a biblical theological emphasis on our embodiment. And so Romans 6 through 8, I think it's really fascinating because we, uh, you know, you talked about framing. I, I think there's essentially the two beats of Christian sanctification in chapter 6. So the end of chapter 5 talks about the reign of grace and yeah. how, how does this reign get, get actualized, right? Um, and uh, I think... You know what it's doing in Chapter Six is essentially saying there's two parts to this: one is reckoning yourselves a uh dead to sin and alive to God, and so that again, if you look forward to chapter twelve that's the sort of mental renewal so you understand what God is doing in the world in justifying us all uh, in Christ um, uh And uh, you understand that that sort of by union with Christ and joining with him in in baptism and uh, being raised with him, uh, that you're you're fundamentally a different uh, person. You're, You're in Christ. And as chapter eight says, uh, you're also filled with the spirit. Then uh, I'll get to that in a second, but the second beat then is the presenting your body as instruments of righteousness, which as Paul says, leads to your sanctification. And so, um, you know, in psychological terms, I think what he's, what, what is essentially happening there is the idea that I said, uh, or that you said of framing. Uh, so, you're understanding the world differently, but then the presenting of your body is actually a sort of new experience of the world. Yeah. Uh, so it's, so you, you come to embody uh, uh, the world in a different way. You come to see it and respond to it in a different way. And of course, uh, as we get to to chapter eight, the key really though, is to be in Christ is to be filled with the spirit and the spirit is bringing uh, to life our, our, our mortal bodies. Right. And so um you know, I, I I think it's fascinating. If you read six through eight, um, and just underline everywhere he talks about body, members, or flesh, you begin to see that actually the, these uh, three chapters are. Uh, he has a lot to say about how we come to embody the reign of Christ. In fact, I think that's the best definition for for flesh is the reign of uh, of sin um, mm. uh, in, in our bodies and and under the law. You, you could say. Um, so you know, chapter eight. When you get to chapter eight, you you see the spirits work in bringing uh, our bodies to life. Uh, I'm we 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 are supernaturalists. We we are dead. Right. Uh, we are dead without the spirits in quickening uh, right. power. Right. Yeah, that, that's yeah. a sort of renewal of God's breath on the ground um, that that's necessary for our salvation. But that renewal, um, uh, as as you know, our bodies are groundlings. Right. We come from the ground. We share in the curse on the ground. Uh, and as you get to the end of chapter eight, you, you understand that uh, God is renewing the ground, but it's still groaning, awaiting um, its redemption. And in the same way, our bodies are also groaning, awaiting their redemption. And so there is this sort of already not yet aspect to the renewal yeah. of the body. And so it has those two beats of sort of reckoning ourselves dead to sin alive to God, presenting our bodies as instruments of righteousness, uh, which leads to our sanctification, all by the Holy Spirit uh, in a work that's a sort of first fruits. Uh, for what is yeah. to come. yeah yeah and wow, real- that
2: it's just beautiful and one of the ways that this cashes out practically uh for for people um just lay people in the pews but also for elders and pastors is uh patience if, mm. if that's yeah. really what we're in the process of undergoing uh like you use the and the and the and the bible is full of horticultural metaphor the christian life is explained as a garden as a tree you know you have to prune things you're grafted into things um then you don't like you're saying you don't get the tree overnight uh it actually has to be it start off as a little seed go in the ground and tended to and cultivated and patiently watches it grows and i wonder this is just just Uh, me totally curious, but with the modern age, I wonder if it's harder for us to do this because of our understanding of like time. Um, Mm. Like our days are so full of things that were not ordinary. It was just not ordinary for like for previous generations. And we have so many things making a claim on our time and our attention that in order to pursue one particular thing, you actually have to really like love it a lot. Uh, but that also creates a sort of ang- anxiousness about how the world is invading us at every turn where mm-hmm. you, it's hard to get quiet. It's hard to have meditation. It's hard to disconnect. It's hard to do all these things. And so we are, by nature, the modern man is less patient than pre... Now, I'm not saying patience is a thing we all, humanity just will always struggle with. But I'm just curious as like in it, with our w- the context that we're in, it seems like patience is a much harder virtue to cultivate because the world is screaming at us that you can't be patient. You got to go, 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 go. So I wonder if that's what, I don't know. Right. Maybe this is where we make errors in relationships and counseling and everything.
1: Right. Yeah. I, 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 re, I mean, as I was writing uh, the final chapters of this, I just, I was so struck by uh, God's patience. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we don't want to be patient, but we've forgotten that actually God is patient. James yeah. 5 uh, mentions that God is like a farmer who, who awaits uh, the, I forget, the, the early and late rains or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I think culturally there's all sorts of pressures uh, on us to maximize productivity. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes uh, what's productive for a farmer is to wait. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the interesting thing, I was just thinking about this a few weeks ago, actually, um, uh, I read Tish Harrison Warren's uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, and um, she talks about waiting in there. And I was struck by how hopeful waiting is, right? Um, the, oftentimes that's the, d- the, the difference between despair in the moment <laughs> and sort of surviving the moment in, in hopefulness is, is knowing, oh, there's actually something coming on the back end of this. And so for me, I mean, a Christian Christian psychology is always going to be eschatological. Like there's always going to be the not yet element that we're oriented towards. And uh, you've got to see um, the the suffering is somehow productive, right? I mean, I mentioned Romans 8 just a second ago. The other thing I was really struck by as I was uh, writing this dissertation was um, when it mentions the curse on the ground. It says that God subjected the ground to that curse in yeah. hope, right? In hope, um, yeah. So, so it's like we we talk a lot about the fall. I I wish we'd talk more about the curse because actually, um, I think the curse had a productive aim. <laughs> like it's uh, yeah. th- there's it's a hope there's a hopeful aim to it, um, and I think the the point is that we would remember, um, where, where we uh, are source of life, right. That we would return and remember our, our source of life. But that hope is it it has to, it has to fuel us. It has to be a source of, of spiritual encouragement.
0: One of the things that strikes me every time I read the New Testament is how often the New Testament talks about weakness. And it's fascinating in part because it's a uh, and just sort of ripping on this comment on patience. It's fascinating, on part that in part that um, there's ways in which you can find parallel between some emphases in the New Testament and what would develop into the virtue ethics tradition, right? Where you there is some there's some notion that's redeemable that we can speak about, and this is part of Greco-Roman philosophy as well, right? That that there is such a thing as becoming an excellent person. You're talking about Paul as an oak tree and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. But that the the New Testament calculation for that differentiation was never sort of man looks at the outward things and God looks at the heart, right? It was never mere sort of outward clinical analysis. It seems like the the New Testament discourse about weakness really modifies uh our, our kind of reading of the human moral journey. And I always think here of Lewis, right? That he he makes this point that um uh you know, that person that is externally not that impressive to you, if you knew where they started, it could be that they, Mm -hmm. among all the Christians in the room, have actually had the most amazing moral journey, uh, you know, including among the pastor and the elders or whatever, which doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that guy should be an elder. (laughs) He's got too many problems. Uh, (laughs) But But he might nevertheless have the best story in the room, interestingly, of God's grace in his life. And so, like, there's and and what's interesting is there's yeah there's real insight uh, and real gifts to be given to the church out of that. Way. That's another thing. Like you're suffering this precisely so that God can convert it into something for you to you know to sort of give to the church. And so that it's you know anytime when I think of like the the Christian. You know, there's a big tendency right now to sort of recover the virtue ethics tradition and this language of sort of the excellency of, the hu- of, of, of human life and that sort of thing. And I think that's all a good thing. And yet I always want to go back to the New Testament and think like, how does it modify or how does it change, both preserve the insight there, but also redirect it in some way. Uh, yeah. by including this. And I just, I find that a fascinating motif. And I think this, what you're doing in this book is just enormously helpful for precisely that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So. yeah I, I, uh, the, the virtue ethics tradition was actually in the background of the whole book. I mean, I, I, in, in, one, in, in one way, I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to um, provide a psychology which uh, can make the, a theological psychology. Uh, that can make the virtue ethics tradition more viable among evangelical pastors. Yeah. Right? Um, right. But it's gotta be theological because you have, like you're saying, you have to understand uh, that, that sinfulness and weakness um, and the curse uh, are all involved in this. Right. Um, but the other thing I was going to say that you, uh, that you made me think of was um, it, it's, it's also for that reason that you, um, you know, we, we sometimes, the virtue ethics tradition, What one of the big problems is it's it's overly sanguine or overly optimistic about uh, human virtue, I think. Um, so it's it's not paying attention to uh, original sin, and it's not paying attention to the ways that original sin sort of gets magnified in w- w- what the New Testament calls the cosmos, the system of the world, yeah. right? right? The system of the world is constantly pushing in on us, like we have this this uh, relationship with the world that we're not even fully aware of how much we're shaped by it. That's the, don't be conformed, but be transformed in Romans 12. Um, But for that reason, um, we actually, I I think one big thing that we get wrong in the evangelical church is we tend to uh, confuse emotional stability with emotional maturity. (laughs) Mm. Um, So there's, there's a lot of people who have got a lot of things going well for them in life. And they, they they seem very stable, but that's not necessarily a deep work that's happened in them, right? right. And so, um, you know, in some ways, we we sort of we we sort of place our bet on respectable Christianity. When actually, if we were really paying attention to the way that weakness or wounding or or um, cultural pressures were pushing on people, we would see that there's just some beautiful Christian formation that's happening in 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 people who yes. are just. At the margins or or overlooked yeah. within our congregations.
0: Yeah, because stability yes. is can not that it always is like obviously stability is often sometimes it is a, the result of virtue and 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 in those cases like mm-hmm. you know absolutely this is a this is a, a crucial gift for the church but there are cases where stability is a is more like a, a kind of emotional strategy it seems like I'm actually just going to kind of pull back over here so that nothing anybody says to me can hurt me. And and people can remain stable in here, but that's actually just because they're cut off from intimacy <laughs> with actual yeah. people. And they and, mm-hmm. and, and you know you see some of these people go become leaders, and you and they lead like right. that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, in, and, in destructive
2: maybe, ways. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I think a part of that has got to be because just the word emotion triggers uh, the the reformed mind in a lot of ways. So if you th- what I hear a lot is like. Don't let your emotions r- rule you. And now that that's a fine maxim. And we would, I think all three of us right. would say, sure, what do you mean? Right? Like what do you actually mean by emotion? Absolutely. And they're there, but that's the that's the that's all that they can say, because the minute that you start to like dig into what is, emo- what are emotions and how do they function and what are they doing? Are they signaling to something that's good? Are they moving towards it? And I'm just not paying attention in appropriate ways or whatever. Um, um, and you actually help us to think about that at the beginning of your book. I think you talk about the phenomenon of emotion and how we can understand it, or at least how, you know, our tradition uh, has understood it before. But, but I think that that's part of the problem too, is like, you get these, um, you know, young men that are coming out of uh, good old, you know, solid reformed uh, seminaries, and they got a head full of doctrine, and they're like, "Emotions bad for some reason," and you right. know, "Don't be yeah. so soft all the time," and you know, "Man mm-hmm. up, boy." And you're like, "Ah." Uh, <laughs> you know? I have a dear so,
0: friend who says the sixth uh, the sixth sola of American uh, American um <laughs> could be a uh, sola bootstrappa. Uh, uh, (laughs) So sometimes it's not, that's not everybody. Thank God, that's not everybody. There's many, many good, uh, good ministers and churches uh, uh, who are, I think, functionally doing these things well. Um, But that does actually what Dale just said kind of helps us get to the next, uh, maybe the next thing that would be worth mentioning. And that is, you know, you've mentioned this sort of cognitivist view of the emotions, which I think maybe is our intuitive way of thinking about them. They reflect sort of deep seated thoughts you know, if you will, and maybe there's some truth in that, that, that maps well onto to some emotional experiences. Um, but there's some contributions, I guess, in contemporary, uh, contemporary psychological studies that complexify that account. And I wonder if, you know, uh, I'm thinking here, of the, this book just seems to be everywhere I turn. Everybody is quoting to me. It's in your bibliography. Um, you probably could already guess who it is. Uh, Vander Kolk, I guess, The Body Keeps the Score seems to be like this almost a a bestseller for challenging some of maybe that that view of the emotions. Mm-hmm. Could, you, could you tell us sort of what the, what's the contribution of maybe that trauma theory or just, or maybe even more broadly, maybe you don't, we don't need to do trauma theory. You mentioned it earlier, but, mm-hmm. but more broadly, what you see as the contribution of contemporary research uh, to understanding the emotions.
1: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, w- I would say that trauma represents a significant challenge, uh, to the theological view right now. And, and trauma was in the background of this as I was writing it. I mean, I'm not directly addressing trauma, but I would say that I'm trying to give a psychology, which can make sense of trauma. Right. Mm. Um, so trauma is one of those words that the, the definition of it sort of is hard to pin down because it, it keeps changing as people are, um, you know, talking about it in, in expanded ways. But, um, I guess you could you could say there's a sort of uh, you know uh, uh, physiological and a psychological definition of trauma. Um, I've written on on trauma, um, and you know I guess one way of looking at it, the psychological would be it's a sort of narrative collapse. Um, you, you you undergo something that you you really have a hard time integrating into into the story of your life. Um, um, a more physiological way of of um, you know, uh, defining it might have to do with, um, kind of how your memory gets encoded and, and how you sort of block off in terms of your, or your neuroscience, uh, your access to certain explicit memories. Uh, that's what one thing Vander Kolk, Kolk talks a lot about is, um, the implicit explicit memory break, um, where, where you have, um, you can be triggered by certain sensory experiences. And, um, uh, you know, like in the, in the, um, the sexual abuse scandal, uh, with the Catholic church in Boston, there this he's got a story of a guy who, who didn't even remember that he had been abused until he heard someone else's story. And then it kind of sort of spiraled and, and his life sort of fell apart two weeks before he would be discharged from the military. But, um, yeah, I, uh, maybe I'm losing track of your question a little bit here, but I think that trauma is a, is a very significant, uh, thing for us to deal with. I'm not sure, um, you know, I think it'll be a while before we kind of get our hands around everything uh, that's, that's going on there. Um, But I do think, you know, having these categories of, um, you know, tiered psychology where there's a difference between what's going on in slow reflective thought and what's sort of uh, what I call the logic of the body, like the, the, the physicality, the sort of lower psyche has its own logic. Um, So even if I don't think, for instance, that, um, you know, all men are abusers. Uh, my body thinks that that's, it's, that's the internalized logic that the shape of my body has, has taken. And, um, helping someone through that, uh, is going to take more than just talking to them probably. Um, that's one of the uh, van der Kolk's significant insights is, is that, um, you know, you can't just treat top down. You have to also treat bottom up. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why I'm pushing on this both thought and experience, um, so, I mean, Christian sanctification, like I said, with the two beats, I, there's there's active and passive elements of thought, um, you know, thinking and hearing. Um, and then right. there's active passive elements with experience, too. Um, uh, you can make choices and put yourself in situations. You're also going to suffer certain things. Um uh, and so um, all of those things matter uh, for for how our bodies are being formed. But I think that having a more holistic view and having that clear distinction between your conscious reflective things and your unconscious uh, thoughts and, and reactions is essential for for um, coming to terms with some of the things that we're learning from modern psych- uh, psychology mm. and, and trauma research, especially.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. Very helpful. Um, yeah. Maybe as a way of, you know, putting some of these things together as we sort of as we sort of sort of go in for a landing here, I guess you could say is maybe we can go back to Mary and then uh and then say, uh, you know, you're a pastor, uh, you know, you've you've read you've read your your logic of the body, you're reading your Bible, you've prayed about the situation, and Mary comes together, and she, Mary comes and she gives you, you know, her story. I'm feeling anxious, this, that, and the other. And, and I think the way you say this at the end is you're, you know, you're not offering so much a method for counseling. Okay, pastors, here's the the grid you need to walk through or something. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, there's sort of a, you give a kind of broad way. You'd, you might want to think through approaching Mary. And maybe you could you could summarize sort of somebody walks into your office, hey, I'm having anxiety. What's the kind of range of things your mind goes through as you're trying to help this person?
1: Yeah, I would. I would hope the 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 single biggest thing that I'm sort of pushing forward uh, is compassionate curiosity. Th- this idea that when you've got someone talking to about talking to you about what they're feeling, um, you've got to really, really ask some really good questions to try and figure out everything that's involved with that, because you know there could be so many things. There could be uh, something going on in the body. I, I had a friend who actually. Um, had a lifelong struggle with depression, had a heart incident, had a pacemaker put in and the depression was gone. And so like the extent to which our bodies are conditioning what we think, like we we're just, we, I don't think the average pastor has a a firm grasp on all the things that could go wrong. Right. So medical doctors uh, are really helpful for, for understanding that. Um, But, but also the childhood experiences are incredibly powerful. Another book that I wish would be as famous as, uh, as Bessel van der Kolk's is um, Bruce Perry's the boy who was raised as a dog. Um, mm-hmm. It is a fascinating study on child development. And honestly, basically why why someone would want to read it is it's a whole bunch of really, really difficult stories about how childhood neglect or mistreatment has has sort of spiraled out into, into adulthood for people. Um, but also really encouraging that a lot of the things that are required to sort of help and heal that are pretty simple. <laughs> um, mm. Like there's one, one, one woman who's sort of a hero in the book is it, you know, her, her intuition was just that, you know, these 12 year olds or whatever she was helping uh, just need to be held. And so she just like take them in her arms and and just rock <laughs> them. Right. And, right. And it's like, it's like, well, well that's, it's genius, but it's also not difficult, you know? So yeah. anyway, Body, childhood, um, there's, there's all sorts of stuff going that we're tracking unconsciously in terms of how our lives are going, how close our relationships are. We know that. We never think about it. Um, the goals that we have, the expectations we have on life. So there's a lot of things to be asked about. And so some compassionate curiosity would say, well, look, this isn't just you know, that you are sinning. Uh, and this isn't just that sin is not involved and it's just something in your body. There's sort of this mix of sinfulness and life experiences and, and um, you know, things that are going on in your bodies or your stage of life. Or, um, and you got to sort of work hard to get your hands around that. So that's the first thing is sort of dig uh, compassionate curiosity. I would say the second thing is, um, you know, I think the cultivation metaphor of, for our emotions and the uh, uh, the garden metaphor, you could say, helps us with some time expectations, both in terms of how fast we expect change to happen, but also uh, where our eschatological expectations are. Um, mm. I mean, I just think that going back to that what we said about hope earlier, um, you know, uh, the, there's there's both an already and a not yet, and um, that sort of that sort of waiting, expectant waiting, where the waiting itself is productive, is an important part of Christian psychology. I think like the um, waiting can build virtue and 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 character and Christian character. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Paul talks about that. Uh, James talks about that. Um, that wait that waiting produces suffering, produces endurance, and endurance yeah. produces hope. Right? Yeah. Um, But then the, I guess the third thing would be sort of expanding your toolkit, uh, for both special and common grace, um, you know, grace is the operative word, all of, all of our, uh, sanctification is, is grace, but, um, I think understanding how our body is involved can also open up some doors, uh, for common grace and, uh, clarify how special grace works with common grace. And, um, so you know, a lot of pastors have talked about like sleep, for instance, or yeah. you know, or uh, you know, vitamin D. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, but we can even expand that to like, I mean, what 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 minister do I have face to face interaction with? Another person is that is that common grace is special grace? Well, potentially both. Actually, um, yeah. getting around other right. people is is uh, just such a gift from God. But it's also those people can minister uh, encouragement to you with the way that they hug you or the the way that they encourage you. Uh, from yeah. the Word of God, and so um, there's just I hope it's just a little bit more. Yeah, of no, that, that's toolbox. so
0: helpful. One of the one of the things that really struck me as you were giving your own answer to that at the sort of toward the end of the book is just how it really is seamless, and 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 sometimes even the best, not always. But in the best of, say, even the Puritan tradition, it's fascinating. Sometimes you can read the Puritans, and you mentioned Richard Sibbs. Uh, you right. know, the, you know, divine seeing God on the face of a friend, or however you put mm-hmm. that. But it's interesting to see you already see a, a discipline where, um, if you read Puritan accounts of the the, the the Christian life, very often there is an emphasis on taking care of your body. Like mm-hmm. if you're not sleeping enough, you're not going to be holy. <laughs> like right, it's, it's right, almost right. just that straight up. Like, well, you got to go to bed. Like, I mean, like, how are you going to solve your sin problems if you don't sleep? Uh, you know? yes, uh, yes. And, it's, th- and it's almost like it's a seamlessness mm-hmm. in how you're treating sin and treating your body. Yeah, uh, and,
1: and, and let me say, let me say something about that too, because I actually think uh, part of the reason why evangelicals have been so confused about the word flesh in the Bible, I think is because, we're, we want so badly not to be Gnostic, right? We yeah, don't yeah. want to blame sinfulness on flesh or, or on our bodies, right? Um, but I think uh, Kevin Van Hooser said this to me. Uh, "There's for every, um, for every move that you make in the doctrine of sin, there's an equal and opposite reaction in the doctrine of sanctification, <laughs> So if you take the body out of the doctrine of sin, you also take it out of the doctrine of sanctification. Mm. So it's not a liability, but it's also not an asset. And I'm just trying to say, no, the body is actually, because it's habituated, it can be either. It can be a liability and an asset or both, right? Sure. Sure.
2: Sure, and I think I think we all understand this intuitively. Like we always say, "Man, I've been eating crap, like crap for the last week. I feel horrible, right?" Like there is so, there is some. Is this a to, personal
1: confession? Confession? Yes, yes <laughs> this <is> personal. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Actually, I, I just can said testify this the to Dale's eating habits. Yeah, those yeah, Cadbury eggs
1: over Easter—that's the problem.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well, the uh, the thing for me is like. Uh, my family and I just moved back uh, to where we moved away from like eight years ago and we're around our, our, my family again. Right. Mm -hmm. So every night is like people coming over a couple bottles of wine, bunch of food, staying up too late, talking with my siblings and my parents. And, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. now everybody's like, Oh, we got to take a break tonight, guys. Just can't, can't do it. Uh, we got to think it's like, yeah, I need a break too. I need more sleep. I got to eat better. We got to, you know, um, but, but that really does something to you psychologically. Like if I miss, and maybe this is a, a real bad example, but I know for me, if I miss my morning walk, the rest of my day just feels so burdensome. Like my walk in the morning, I get the fresh air, it clears the cobwebs out. I normally have a podcast, so mind is going a little bit. Heart rate's up, you know, muscles are working, body's sort of good. And then when I get home, it's like, okay, now I'm ready to do all the other things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, I mean, like like what we your whole thesis is, that's just the way that reality is. And all right. we're trying to mm-hmm. do is explain it well. So yeah well, and jo- then- and, th-
1: and that expanded toolbox also helps us to see some of the wisdom in how Israel's uh, life as a community was arranged too. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's just, it's just a lot more. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I'll put it this way. You've got uh, you've got the garden of Eden, and then you've got, um, you know, wh- where th- there's a relationship between God and, and human beings. Like that's the primary essential relationship. Then there's a relationship between, God, between humans and other humans, And then there's relationships between humans and the land. Mm. And if you plot that sort of um, what, what goes wrong then between God and humans affects the other two relationships. There's pain in childbirth, there's pain in, in cultivating Mm. the land. So cultivation failure in both, in both respects, the the, the fruit is made difficult. Right. Um, But if you plot that then forward, whatever you think goes wrong is then restored um, in, in, in the last time. And so um, you know, it, it i think it opens up a sort of fuller and richer uh, embodied and grounded uh, wisdom of how god is working in the world uh, throughout uh, the narrative of scripture
2: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, th- that's good. And we could sit here and talk for hours, brother, because uh, your book is thick. I mean, it comes in at a, a, a what was it like almost 400 pages, 350, 360, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the logic of the body, highly recommend, um, carefully researched. You can see the painstaking uh, moves that you're making with your study and just the way you organized it. And it's a blessing. I'm hoping more people will read this and really understand it and get into conversations about it. And I'm looking forward to how this is going to sort of cash out five, 10 years from now. So good work, brother. We appreciate yeah. you.
1: Well, this is and such, it's such a gift to have conversations like this uh, with, with you guys. So thanks so much. Our
2: pleasure. Yep. It's Absolutely. our pleasure. All right, guys. Well, as always, you can head over to um, uh, davenantinstitute.com to find out pilgrim faith tab you can also go over to davenant institute on youtube slash pilgrim faith and uh, if you like these videos and you should because we're all amazing here uh then share it all over the place let's get uh, matthew lapine's uh, work in the hands of many um we also have a facebook group you can join just search us on facebook pilgrim faith podcast uh but until then joe love you brother love you too man matt thank you so much thank you and we will talk soon
0: see ya